Welcome to the Ultimate Guide to Partnering. In this podcast, Vince Mincione, a proven industry sales and partner executive, brings together technology leaders to discuss transformational trends and to deconstruct successful strategies to thrive and survive in the rapid age of cloud transformation. And now your host, Vince Mincione. Welcome to or welcome back to the Ultimate Guide to Partnering where technology leaders come to optimize results through successful partnering. I'm Vince Menzion, your host, and my mission is to help leaders like you unlock the leadership principles and learnings of the best in the business to get partnerships right, optimize for success, and deliver your greatest results. I believe that we in the tech sector have both an opportunity and an obligation to lead at this time. And having sat on both sides of the table, I know intuitively that organizations still struggle to work with the tech giant. So when I met my next guest at a virtual event earlier this year, I knew I needed to have her as a guest on Ultimate Guide to Partnering. My guest for this episode of the podcast is Mary Williamson, Microsoft's Corporate Vice President for Azure Infrastructure, Digital and App Innovation, and Azure IoT. That's a heady title. What I can tell you is Mary's organization is responsible for creating the way Microsoft takes its solutions from engineering to the customer. I describe her as the glue that connects the complexity of technology developed by engineering functions and makes these into concrete offers that Microsoft sales teams and partners can sell. And Mary is also a person of color. And as a black woman at Microsoft, I really enjoyed a very vulnerable and candid discussion about her career and her time now at Microsoft. I hope you enjoy part two of this interview as much as I enjoyed spending time with Mary Williamson. Well, let's shift back into business for a few minutes here because this is a fascinating conversation. We could spend the rest of the podcast here, but I do want to unlock a little bit about the business side. So because I walk the hallways of Microsoft And I virtually try to simplify the complexity of Microsoft for Microsoft partners. Can you help me on that? How do you measure, like we talk about scorecards, right? How do you and your organization measure success? For me, there's a hundred dashboards I could look at any given day. Success with a partner is the customers are thrilled with their experience on the Microsoft cloud. And it sounds simple, but it's very hard. And we measure that. And I think are looking for our partners to help us measure that in the right way sometimes because the Microsoft cloud is our overall portfolio of offerings. And I think we do tend to measure success by solution areas. So a partner might say, hey, was customers really thrilled with their experience in Azure? but might not, but might be struggling with one of our other businesses. How do we make sure that we really measure that customer full experience left and right? I also think that we've got to measure our go-to-market capabilities with our partners so that we're bringing repeatable points of view, repeatable learnings, assets that make their lives easier so that all our customers and and in turn our partners don't feel like we're all recreating the wheel every time we have a, a conversation. We know our enterprise customers are all unique and they have unique scenarios and, and things that they've built for their, their companies operating back end and front end over the last decades. But we have to bring them ways to accelerate things uh, that we know they'll run into. Our cloud adoption framework, our Azure enablement score, we have lots of tools now that I think we should be using more and more with those customers and partners to help them then add more value rather than some of those kind of block and tackle areas. 
the area I think we can do better and should measure more is this, what I'll call storytelling, but really in these industry centric motions, we know the partners with Microsoft can build better storytelling. How do we now build that in ways that are repeatable learnings backed up by technical capabilities, reference architectures? I think that's the next version of how we're going to start measuring things with partners. It's got to be through that lens. Yeah, I know storytelling is just so important. I just had Ducks Raymond Sai, who I don't know if you know Ducks, but he's pretty prevalent in the Microsoft partner ecosystem. And we talk about brand and brand storytelling just as being so important. Technology organizations, you're an engineer, you get this. Like it's not the first thing you think about as a technology organization. What's been fascinating to me before I joined Microsoft was watching the brand evolution as a technical partner myself. And I'll be honest, when I was that partner showing up on Redmond's campus in the early 2000s, it wasn't a fun experience. <laughs> like I dreaded it. <laughs> I was like, are we going to actually get kicked out this time again? You know, it was just not, a. I had some thorny experiences that the brand as a partner was important technology partner, very challenging. <laughs> <laughs> and I think today uh, it's it's different. And you know, yeah. partners are seeking true partnership, are looking for us to sit down and help look at not just activating a specific technology, but you know what's the business model of the future? How can we both benefit together? It's you know the win-win mindset on steroids. How can we open markets for you? How can we bring you into our our co-selling culture? And so I think that there's there's a lot to the Microsoft brand that motivates our partners to really spend time with us and and vice versa. And it's a different Microsoft now. Like you were talking about the early aughts, you know, it was almost like a vendor relationship. I know the company you came from and it was a very different relationship back then. Yeah. Yeah, it was. And being here now, it's just stunning to work across organizations and see how collaborative it is and see how open people figuratively and, and before COVID, literally pulling up seats at the table and opening up information in, in a world that we live in today. It's the only way to get anything done. It's just such a complex set of technologies and things happening in the world all at once. So without that kind of open culture, I, I don't know how we, we'd continue to move forward. Oh, you mentioned you have all these customer and partner meetings. Is that what you see from the best of the best, like this openness to collaborate, open up the book and let's let's figure it out together? Is that what you see from the best partners? I do. I think doing it, it, it sounds like a no brainer, but partners who are doing the right thing by the customer and can really do a great job of representing the customer voice where Microsoft feels like we're also representing the customer voice, but we might be blind to how we listen to that customer because partners have a different set of ears. I think that bringing those two pieces of the solution together always delight the customer because we then see what the customer doesn't see, right? Customer might have requirements one through N and we come in with a different list to say, we, we now understand your problem and here's a more efficient cost savings, accelerated way to go do that. And yeah, I think there's a lot of partners out there that do a great job of that every day. I was just going to say, I think that partners don't necessarily s- struggle because I think they excel at the solutions space. I think one thing that we both have to empathize with, bring empathy back, is that our customers are going through massive change. Like a senior leader in IT today, you didn't get here by running a lot of our enterprise customers, I should say, are not 20-year cloud experts. I mean, <laughs> that would be strange. Most of them are really, really good at running a fine, a fine-tuned operating center where IT is an important arm of running the business, but hadn't necessarily had that seat at the table. 
And then all of a sudden they're thrown into kind of the lion's den of do it and do it faster and make sure it's part of the, you know, line of business accelerated margins of this business. It's just, that's a lot, right? Yeah. While you're still going and driving through change and driving through some of the investments and, and things that won't, won't change as fast as others want them to change. So yeah, bringing people along as partners in Microsoft together is, that's, that's a tough part. You know, it struck me that the pandemic, we went from this five-year IT roadmap, technology plan, whatever was described at within an organization, and we just hit the go button. Like we had mm-hmm. it, we skipped over the five years and it was, and that has created a tremendous amount of stress. It has. And I think the IT leaders who had the five-year plan that we were struggling to get funded, all of a sudden had to rip them up and then have a kind of a generic hand wave accelerate it and go faster, which, you know, is a blessing and a curse probably for, for many organizations. I, I think the great thing about it though, is, is we don't have to think as linearly as we've thought in the past. I think a lot of our approach is was Microsoft and the industry talks about horizons, horizon one, horizon, you know, the fundamentals of cloud, horizon two, you're starting to really get into some of the more advanced modernization of your infrastructure. And then horizon three is when you're really doing the exciting innovation. And so many of my IT leaders I talked to today said, I got to start with one, obviously, because we've got to get that foundation solid, or we have a start to the foundation. How do I really make sure it's it's as sure as it needs to be, but I have to accelerate three. Like I have to get some proof of concepts. I need to know how we can make decisions in the next, you know, nine to 18 months that are really going to trigger a different set of investments to optimize the business, to have better insights in a business, to create a new business, to compete in a market that um, is changing more quickly than we expected. Yeah, no, we've been talking about this for a while now on the podcast about the work that Gartner did. And they interviewed 76% of CEOs in every industry and every geography said their businesses are going to be unrecognizable in five years. And that, that you mentioned the proof of concept. This is where I think partnerships really come in to accelerate that. We've got to get there. And if we, we can't do it alone. Absolutely. Isn't that stunning? Can you imagine working in something fun, fashion design, and say five years from now, it's going to be completely different yeah. again? Like how, who, what other markets have to go through such um, incredible change. Yeah, there's a big element of partners that'll make that you know, successful and, and confident plans versus a lot of guessing and fear. We want to help people kind of get through this with, with high confidence, repeatable, known elements, and then discover together quickly. And every company is going to be a technology company in some respect. So that fashion design firm, mm-hmm. maybe they're going to be a technology company and you're going to hit a button and it's going to design your outfit for you and just mail it to you that that's where we're going absolutely i think the every market has an example and i think when you get into the layers of it it's exciting it's whether it's and it's exciting for the whole generation of young people who won't see these things as different right the art students will be able to program as well as the computer science folks i think it's just a matter of where they go when they're choosing their career paths such exciting times such exciting times You know, I'm glad you brought up career paths. I have worked with a lot of early and career professionals, and I'm also fascinated with the journey. And I know that a lot of our listeners would love to learn more about you and your career journey, Mary. So can you tell us what the path was like for you? You self-described as a black woman, and I call it a very white male-dominated tech industry that we still today, unfortunately. What what was that career path like for you? I'll tell you, I... I went to university and got my undergrad and master's 
in engineering, industrial and manufacturing engineering, and loved the idea of building things and considered the management consulting path for about 30 seconds. A lot of my colleagues went that way. But yeah, I, I really fell into a much more traditional engineering path. And I'd say was lucky because I had some extraordinary experiences in like the first decade that were outside of the center of the business that I was in. I was working for Intel out of, out of school and looked at the emergence of telecommunications in the early 2000s, the, what was happening with media and over the top internet driven media in the mid to latter 2000s. I mean, it was, it was fantastic. And I highly recommend for people who are starting their careers to look at places where they can be in innovative spaces because you learn a lot and you wear a lot more hats. But for that time, I really was the only, typically the only one in the room of both very large rooms and absolutely the only person of color for miles. And so I tried to blend in, right? I tried to be very kind of gender and ethnicity neutral and because that was the safest spot for me to be. And then I worked very, very hard to be an extraordinary performer and you know, prove myself every single day. And so that was a lot of opportunity and a lot of work and a lot of good mentorship, I think, along the way to keep me moving forward. But certainly didn't feel like a lot of the doors were opening without me pushing pretty hard until I got to probably my mid-career where I started leading teams and leading larger efforts and learning how to do technical work with business development on the side and then M&A, and then leading product management teams. And then I had some, I think, more credibility. So I was pushing bigger doors, maybe louder, but still was pushing doors instead of having doors open. You know, and I think I got pretty good at, at, at sussing out things I was interested in tended to be where market trends were going. So I, I got on the cloud train early in the 2010s, learned about API management very early on when it was the first when, when this first API economy newsletters came out and said, you shall, you all should pay attention to this outside of Silicon Valley. And then got into cloud architectures and led a team where we were uh, a mashup of hardware and software, looking at innovative ways to build cloud architectures of the future, working with cloud companies, cloud providers, as well as enterprise companies who were designing for on-prem cloud. And then got into security for a little bit, very dip my toe in that water because I felt like security was going to be really important to wrap around that cloud architecture point of view. And, you know, up to that point had been really building my capabilities as a leader in that technical and product space and then shifted way right uh, towards the end of my Intel career towards sales, which was a fascinating and, and awesome empathy exercise where I thought in the company that had pretty high market share <laughs> Intel, that selling would be like the easiest, <laughs> easiest job I'd ever had. And I was like telling my husband how I was going to be like, finally take a break from working so hard all these years. And it turns out sales is ridiculously hard and, and challenging in different ways than I ever expected. Even when you're selling something customers want and they want to make this transition and your part is the best part on the planet, it's still hard. And you still have a lot of technical questions, but even more human-centric questions to go help people lead through. And that's how I ended up in sales is really that bridge between my technical past and really touching the world of customers and partners. And I guess it's just yet another engineering problem in my head. You know, how do you connect all these dots and, and, and make a solution sing? And how do you do that? I think it's, it's having really 
good, smart people be willing to ask questions until they get the right answer or to get the clear answer. Not being afraid to ask. Not being afraid to ask. I think uh, what I saw in maybe technology, overall, my experience in technology, the thing that got you good at selling SKUs or products is not going to be the talent to solve the problems of the future. Because if you're selling some fixed widget, there's only so many questions you're going to get. And there's only so many answers you can get. When you're trying to solve a true transformation, digital transformation problem, you have to ask a lot of really good questions, really to understand what are we trying to do? What are the requirements? What is the legacy? What are the interconnected dependencies? Who are the decision makers? What is more important to you? Who are the people that need to be brought along this journey that are not decision makers like this? There's so many, so many different questions. And as you described earlier, empathy has to enter the room there. Absolutely. So you mentioned something. I want to I key in on something you said, because you said you talked about blending in early on, and I understand that. And then, but you also said you had a push. So what was pushing like? Pushing. Yeah, I think I go back to some of the things I, I learned and, and, and can now repeat to others when I mentor them is, is I got really good at reminding people and documenting what impact that I had because I found maybe this was a learning after in that first 10 years that when you leave it up to others to tell your story for you, you're leaving it up. You're leaving it a little bit too much out. It, it's too squishy. And really understanding the story you're telling, the impact that you're making day to day, what expectations your role and the people around you are standard expectations. And here's how I'm over delivering heroes and how I'm making additional impact more than what was expected. That took some skill to be able to communicate that and then skill to defend it. It feels like the, the bias for a lot of folks is for me, at least in the early part of my career, it's, you know, you did great, but not yet. I had to wait 10 years for a promotion. You have to wait 10 years for mm. a promotion. You know, really removing yourself from some of those personal biases, no matter what they are, and say, how can you debate with data? I'm an engineer. How can you debate with this data? And so I got pushing doors with data and, and then got support systems, boards of directors to nod their heads and say, yeah, we believe that. We've seen that. Let's keep going. But also along the way, you know, you, you're here detractors, I would say. You're too ambitious. You're going, you're expecting too much. You should be happy with what you have. These are all things I've been told in <laughs> just over, <laughs> like it can go on and on. Sounds like um, a review. Non-subtle things, not very <laughs> subtle at all. Very direct feedback. Yeah. Yeah. And it kept going anyway. So was there like, was a mentor or a best piece of advice you received that helped you push through that and, and continuing to go in the direction you knew you needed to go? The one thing I remember that was, was, it was like a small thing and a huge thing all at once was I worked for somebody who left me a lot of space to design strategies for the product we were leading. And it was a pretty big company-wide impact, the changes I was considering. And we wanted to move fast. And we'd been working together for a number of years before this role. And I was scheduling some time to go through my options and my my ABC trade-off analysis. And this person looked at me and said, you're the last person you're convincing <laughs> that you know what you need to go do. You know what you need to do. Tell me what you need to do and go do it. And it was just it was a moment of permission to lead, permission to stop managing and start leading. Mm. And, and also believe in myself and not in an abstract way, like a cat poster, but really like you've 
earned this depth of, of knowledge, now go apply it. But don't just apply it and ask permission, but go actually lead and take on that courageous step because leading means you're taking a risk because you're the decision maker, right? And I'm, it was a very short comment with a very large meaning. And how did you allow courage to enter the room? I think a bit of planning ahead. I think if I look back, it's knowing that taking a position means I'll have to proactively get in front of detractors and make sure my team is focused on this path and not all of the excuses not to do this or all of the blockers or roadblocks or we haven't done that. And so I think that's where my my shift went from convincing people to opening up the space. You, know, you almost go from player to coach in, in different parts of your life. And that was my shift. Sounds like growth mindset to me as well. It definitely is growth yeah. mindset. Yeah, it, it was growth mindset and, and risk taking to a degree because it wasn't a growth mindset culture around it. You know, I, I was there when Satya gave us each a copy of Carol Dweck's book. And mm. I, I don't know if it was promulgated through the Intel culture at the time. But I was just kind of curious. No, I think growth mindset was a little bit of an abstract concept. When I got to Microsoft, I'd heard about it and it sounded wonderful. And again, cat postery <laughs> until you start living it. And it's nice to have a consistent application of it. I wouldn't say my experience at Intel or other places in general don't have pockets of people doing amazing things and breaking out. And I was able to be in breakout business models and breakout teams looking at things differently. And so that was great. But I, I don't, I, the amount of people who have bought into this in all walks of life, whether you're in the Xbox team, or the Bing team, or the Azure team, or the Office team, uh, I, I would say it's pretty consistent. Yeah. yeah, it's amazing. I love the culture. This has been a great conversation. We could go on for hours. I do want to have you back at some future date, but I want to have a fun time with you. I want to ask you a fun, what I believe to be a fun question now. So you're hosting a dinner party and, you know, we are in a position now, hopefully vaccinated, past the Delta variant, unmasked, and you're able to invite any three guests from the present or the past to this dinner party, this amazing dinner party. How about the future? Could be the future. Could be the future as well. We'll, we'll put the future in here. Whom would you ask to come to your party, past, present, future, and why? You know, I was thinking about this, and I wanted to come up with some brilliant names of historical figures. But I'll go back to what was really authentically me. And I think it would be really amazing. I have to maybe describe my family, my, my husband. And I have two children, a 14-year-old boy and a 12-year-old girl. Evan and Sophie, my husband's name is Derek. And I thought, wow, what would be the most impressive table to sit around? It would be the four of us all at the same age. Oh, wow. Like, what if we were all picked the perfect age? I'll say 33, little wise, over your 20s. Nothing hurts yet, hopefully. And wouldn't that be an interesting conversation? I love that. That is so, Mary, you got me on this one. This is amazing. Yeah. And what would you talk about? Like, how would you start the conversation with your, 33-year-old self talking to your husband's 33-year-old self and your children's 33-year-old selves. Gosh, I think it would be it would be like talking to a long-lost stranger, right? A long-lost relative of, you know, what have you been doing all this time? And tell me about your life. And are you happy? And what makes you happy? And what brings you joy? And what's your vocation? And what's your hobby? And, you know, what? how do you see the world? You know, those are all questions I, I would... And wine, lots of wine. Absolutely, lots of wine. I would love to maybe come in for a glass of wine and meet your family at 33. Such a great dinner party. 
I think so. I well, like them now most of the time. Yeah. They're teenagers, so you got to bear with me. Well, I've been there. We could talk about this after offline. And they do come back, by the way. And then you can ask them, did they? Did you listen to me? <laughs> I have to believe. <laughs> so, Mary, before I let you go, this, you've been an amazing guest, but any closing comments or words of, I don't want to use the word advice, but guidance for our partners on how to be most successful working with Microsoft? I would say challenge us, test us in our culture. Call us out if you're not seeing us measure up, but more so I I think partners are still feeling out, is it real? Can I really have this open conversation and tell them it's not working? Will they think I'm trying to mess up this partnership? Saying no. We want to hear if you see something that we can fix. I've had partners be really bold and blunt and it's amazing. Those are the people on my speed dial. (laughs) So please keep pushing us to be better. I love what you had to say. And I just want to thank you. I know how compressed your schedule is and it's taken us several months to get you on the podcast. And I just want to thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Vince. As with each of my episodes, I appreciate your support. Please subscribe on your favorite platform, like, comment, tell your friends about Ultimate Guide to Partnering and where they can find us. And I'd love your feedback. Please like the podcast and provide comments or reach out to me at Vince Menzion on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can also like and follow Ultimate Guide to Partnering on our Facebook page or drop me a line at vincem at ultimate-partnerships.com. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Ultimate Partnerships. Ultimate Partnerships helps you get the most results from your partnerships. Get partnerships right, optimize for success, deliver results. For more information, go to ultimate-partnerships.com. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of The Ultimate Guide to Partnering with your host, Vince Minzione. Online at ultimateguidetopartnering.com and facebook.com slash ultimateguidetopartnering. We'll catch you next time on The Ultimate Guide to Partnering.